thank you for your patience on this slightly delayed episode. If any of you happen to listen to this today, there is a call to action to make sure that you um, are empowered to provide any feedback. If you get a chance to look at the ACO proposed revisions before the end of the day, uh, that's one of the calls to action this episode. And if you missed it, no worries. This is what learning is about. So getting more in the loop on the process, and that can help us be ready for the next opportunity to give some constructive clinician-led feedback to bodies like ACO. Um, we also have a great call to action for clinician involvement across the whole OT leadership spectrum in this podcast. Um, both Tim and I want to be allies to you as a clinician in helping you feel um, more empowered to get involved in the process that processes that shape our profession, that shape our science base. We're all about creating openings and doorways for you to get involved. And really, that's the focus of this podcast episode is about building clinician and academic partnerships and creating openings so that clinicians and our clients can get more involved in shaping the developments of our science and of our discipline and our profession by being responsive to the needs that are happening in our communities that are on the front lines opening up areas of communication so that our research can be more responsive to the needs on the front lines and that our processes can become more and more democratic, inclusive, really starting on occupational justice issues, I strongly believe starts at home, that we can start building trust and credibility in the occupational therapy and occupational science profession by showing that we can walk our walk and talk our talk, that we care about occupational well-being, inclusion, justice issues um, across every, you know, aspect of our daily lives and focus because this follows us wherever we go. I think this is what occupational science and developing an occupational science lens invites you to do as a critical consumer, as a clinician, as a potential client. We can start seeing the systems around us and where there are opportunities to increase inclusion, justice, reputation, no, sorry, being belonging, a representation. That's what I meant to say. There are just so many different exciting opportunities of how we can use our agency to enhance our science and to enhance our profession. And it really starts with building dynamic, active partnerships between these communities that seem separated, like academics and clinicians. This is a living example and active conversation between academic like Tim Dion and me, somebody who's mostly operating and facilitating as a clinician at this time. We're here to build and open doorways and hope that this conversation and, and more like it can inspire you to become more involved as an empowered stakeholder. I'm excited to share uh, Tim Dion's work in here in this podcast. We're going to go over some aspects of the ECHO program that he's been involved in and a little bit of our journey and our leadership development to make it hopefully seem a little bit more accessible to you and to show how and to role model how we can use our privilege to widen the table and invite more to get in, more people to get involved. That's really going to be what is required to make occupational therapy uh, a dynamic profession that is responsive to the most pressing community needs. I also wanted to do a quick shout out and thank you to everyone who got involved in supporting Washington State, our bill to allow a mechanism for community-based mental health reimbursement for OT services in the state passed. 
And part of that was grassroots activism. I reached out to many of you and put those action calls out on my Facebook page and through different email addresses. And we had a big win with that legislation in no small part because of grassroots mobilization, of people taking interest and seeing the opportunities that are playing out. I hope this can inspire you to check in on your own state to see how the conversation around mental health has been evolving since the pandemic. There may be critical junctures for your OT community to maybe do something similar to pursue and how that mental health staffing crisis that we could be part of bridging that gap and bringing OT in the communities where we really belong, especially for those with mental illness that oftentimes I've found don't have a physical health impairment, but still have significant occupational disruptions and needs for skilled support services. This really is an ongoing fight that we get to be a part of and that we're stronger if we network and communicate and collaborate together to create meaningful and long-lasting changes. Um, that's really the spirit of this podcast here and the community that we're building is to really support each other in taking action for long-term transformation and growth in the OT and profession and the field of occupational science and how we integrate and collaborate. So anyway, that's the spirit of the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And please see the linked resources in the description to get more connected to Tim Young's body of work and to get involved in ECHO projects and other things that we're going to be rolling out as the years progress. Thank you, Volby. Thank you all so much for, for participating in this show today. Oh, there's a great call out too for the community practice that needs an OTA rep. Um, if any of you OTAs want to be involved in a powerful community at AOTA, please reach out to Tim. Uh, he invited including his contact information in the description. Thank you guys. Welcome to a experimental podcast recording. I invited a good friend of mine, Dr. Tim Dion. Did I say your name right? Dion, that's okay. <laughs> Dion, Dion, I'm sorry. I quite know exactly how to say folks last name when I mostly just read it. it's hard when you don't know people as much in person but it's wonderful one of the things about the online world is now we can collaborate on projects asynchronously I met Tim back in 2014 we were both included in the American Occupational Therapy Association's Emerging Leader Development Program and when I first met Tim, I was impressed he had an interest in how we could leverage technology in the OT community. Since then, I remember you were very interested, like, in the developments of the AOTA has a community. Mm-hmm. I remember you asking a lot of questions about that at that time. And actually, I think you even have some thoughts on how that's developed, too, and ways that we can leverage. So I, I welcome bringing that in the conversation. But Tim and I circled back and reconnected by having a joint interest in implementation science and what implementation science has to offer us in the occupational therapy and occupational science world when it comes to what's commonly referred to as knowledge translation, which is taking the development's that have taken place in the academy in academic work and finding ways that they can actually translate into the community and that we can bring them into active use for everyday clinicians, communities, members, stakeholders. We have this crisis where we develop amazing strides in scientific insight, but it takes usually almost decades for those insights to actually 
move the needle with anything on the ground or for people to even know what it is. In order to change that, we need to start thinking differently about how we communicate about our science developments, how we develop our science. And there's just a lot of conversation, I think, happening over the last past decade at least about how we need to change up the the practice patterns as normal in academia. And so one of the things that Tim and I are partnering with is to role model what it looks like to partner with academics and to start experimenting in lifetime with different opportunities that we have to translate knowledge and include more people in the conversation. So that's foregrounding this. And Tim and I are going to get to collaborate on a chapter about just this. So we're doing this thing where we're critiquing traditional publishing while innovating alternatives to it in lifetime. And so this is, we're welcoming you to be part of our broader table conversation. And I'm somewhat failing to circle back to the introduction of Tim. So I've referred <laughs> how we've met and how we know each other. But as our careers have developed, Tim ended up going from having a role primarily as a clinician to mm-hmm. one that's now more primarily in, in academic, in academia. He got his bachelor's degree in occupational science, which is really exciting to me. Went on to become an OT clinician in what sounded like maybe a few traditional settings. I know you worked in SNF, right? Yeah, so my first clinician position was at the University of Chicago Medical Center in acute. And that was, as a new grad, it was shocking to say the least. And so then I transitioned to inpatient rehab. At the time, it was called the Rehab Institute of Chicago, and now it's called Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. And I was was on the float team, so I basically covered everywhere, which is where my interest started because I got to see how everyone did things and everyone did things differently. And RIC has been the number one rehab hospital for 30 years now and probably more than that. And this is the best of the best clinicians. And I went from floor to floor and I could see the microcosm of siloed intervention systemic side like everybody is a clinician and everybody that's there is really thinking on the forefront they're doing the most dynamic work but just like the way that the system is set up you're maybe like siloed and it's not Mm -hmm. fully yeah I think that's important because I think it's easy sometimes for a lot of us I don't know personally anybody in my generation that doesn't have some sort of trauma associated with how our structures of education are set up, maybe (laughs) particularly in the U.S. I think academia can be, it can take a beating. A lot of us have anger about how academia is set up, rightfully. I feel like these conversations about exclusivity in academia and some of the systemic challenges there, they still end up reproducing themselves in our work settings too. Like I think clinicians need to think about how our hospital systems are set up, how information mm-hmm. is flowing where we work as well. We're kind of part of the system, whether we know it or not. It's not right. just an academia problem. It's also how are we communicating in our work setting environments? How are we respecting other fields of thought, other disciplines? Like, I, I really, that's why I love that we're doing this today of inviting more clinicians to this conversation too, because we have some skin in this game. Okay, I'm failing again for the introduction standpoint. (laughs) So Tim is already, I'm learning in this session too, that you have a pretty robust background in adult in the U.S. And then you also then went back to get your PhD. Yeah, I wanted to pursue the PhD. Part of it is uh, my family is full of academics. Like literally everyone in my family has a PhD. And both my parents and my wife's parents are all retired professors 
And, and so it's a family tradition and, and I did it not just for that reason, but that was part of it. But because I wanted to, to help move the needle in terms of bringing information to the people who needed it the most missions. And so in, in various settings, that's been the underlying spirit for most of my research that I've done and am doing. And so is bringing, translating that evidence into practice and through different ways and and I also have a bit of a rebellious side of me too. So yeah. I like breaking down rules. That's good. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, so yeah, it sounds like you had lived experience that was informed. I think what's so cool is that you've had some developmental perspective on academic work, which many people, what do I want to say? I feel like the academy is so mysterious and right. so exclusive and it can feel really intimidating for most ordinary people. It feels intimidating for everyone. That's the secret. But it's set up to be that way. But yeah, it's crazy. I was thinking about what you were saying earlier about how the, there's not just an, you hear about in academia having these silos and having people isolated. And across campus, there's all these people doing similar work, but you never really interact. And I think that has has a really good analog in our health healthcare system at yeah, itself. Yeah, it translates. It feeds down. Almost this exactly. Is like kind of whatever and most people in conventional work environments know, like the culture of how your management like responds to challenges and problems it tends to replicate downward in some way. And or I think it's important to have an ecological approach to some of these problems because I don't know how the leadership developments it can trickle down. I think we see that because like in the academy and in its initial historically Descartes decided to separate like consciousness from the body, right? Mm-hmm. Had this original old school philosopher decision that now has contemporary implications because we've always separated understanding the brain and cognitive process and mental separate from the physical health system. And we're still trying to journey into bring that back. So the academy dynamics, it's important for us to know about it. And what I wanted to highlight about what a rare gift it is to be able to partner with an academic and a clinician like you is that you also got developmental experience and insight Mm -hmm. into how these systems work on a lived experience side by seeing how your family related to these challenges. And that's really helpful context to be able to share for those of us that didn't get that cultural capital to humanize academia. I think we need to humanize it and know that like these challenges in academia are similar to the challenges that we face in our day to work. These are ultimately just human beings. We're trying to make the most with these resources. And it's so important for us to compassionately partner with each other and share insight. Because I feel too that a lot of academics that maybe have had a family history of that too, they're not as connected to the lived experiences of what clients or clinicians right. are experiencing. So we do need to communicate because otherwise, how are we going to learn from each other? And how right, can we exactly. have like mutual interests too that can be supported by partnering with each other? And I think that at least entry-level instructors and academics who teach and do research, who teach in entry-level OT programs, have a unique perspective because they're also expected to create therapists from sharing knowledge. And the textbook thing, for example, is that's when the new textbooks are like, oh, here's a new edition and the new knowledge and let's share it. But how many of those instructors are sharing the new information to the new baby therapists? And then once those 
baby therapists are sent out into the world, do they share their information with their colleagues who've been practicing for 20 years? Probably not. So there's this weird cultural separation between between both academic student and students, like the instructors and the students, and the students newly become therapists and their senior clinicians. And they're the same. It's seniority. It's age. It's, it's, which is ends up being a barrier to knowledge and not always. And I don't want to generalize, but oftentimes <clears throat> when you go to a new clinic, this is the way we do things. Oh, it's, yeah. But I learned this way. No, but we don't do it that way. We do it this way. And a lot of external structures are like, Oh, we're doing outcome based reimbursement. So you have to do better at your patient outcomes in order to get paid. And that drives practice, but really it should be evidence-based. And even then it's not. And so I think there's a lot of, go ahead. I think, sorry to cut, I, we, yeah, it should be, this, it is, this is just highlighting to me just how much is a systemic problem yep. that this gets broken down. And we obviously are, and I think that COVID has done some helpful work in breaking down and how these systems have not been serving our clients and haven't been working. Because if we default in the organizations we work in doing things how they've always been done, that means that we are almost like we're active and complicit in this this crisis. Do you remember what this crisis is actually called? I cannot think of the word about... The, like, the 15 years from bench to bedside? Yes. Yeah, I... There's got to be a term for it. I don't know what it's, it's the lag. But like most of us, if we do things how they've always been done, we're then automatically pretending that we're still in the late 70s. Like a lot of the stuff that has mm-hmm. actually, because of this, it takes so many decades to have the developments of our science get to the field. If we're just doing what's already been done as clinicians, we're pretending that we're practicing in 1983 when right. it is... 2023. And yeah. And I think some of it from one perspective is that science requires rigor and requires structure in order to be worthwhile. And so I think that there's this expectation for a lot of this applied science and things like new interventions and new systematic assessments and things like that can be applied in the clinic. It has this notion, and it's definitely not a conscious notion, but just a notion that it's needs that time. It needs to be standardized or are you talking about like the difference between setting up field research for publication and trying to have things fidelity and control and validity and those high precision. I think that's one of the things that's helpful about having a conversation with you on here, because with understanding of implementation science, that how you structure validity for an experimental design for publication is a different question than how we adapt that information for practice and in the field. Because there's there's a conversation that's happening more actively now with implementation science around ecological validity. So maybe we should break down what ecological validity is. In terms of like study design, I will just add before we break it down, just add that a lot, there's a trend, a recent trend that they have that studies are designed to be pragmatic and using the word Mm. pragmatic is like applicable to real life versus 
<clears throat> non-pragmatic controlled sterile studies, which is the basis of science, and no one's disputing that. But it doesn't work to take that. You can't apply those findings in a pragmatic way. Um, and so studies that are designed in more realistic settings with more realistic populations, and it can be in an ecological landscape where we're looking at a certain region of people, a certain culture, like diagnosis, like whatever it is, it, it makes it more applicable when the study is designed more realistically, because then the outcomes could have a higher chance of matching real life. It's what you're saying, too, is that in the academy, we have standards for rigor for a publication and for getting a good understanding of what result, like what was the factor, what was the influence that really shifted this result? Whenever you do a design where you have a control as you're trying to with like weed out the noise, you're trying to say what are the most meaningful variables that change to this property, usually testing a hypothesis. You have to get conditions as controlled as possible in some, in, in a very productive biomedical scientific. There are some critiques of this kind of model, but there is still a place for it. And especially in OT, we ask a lot of questions that you can get great insight in with these designs. However, once you figure out what those variables are and you understand the relationship, what we're saying with ecological validity, we're not going to be implementing the results of this in controlled areas, in controlled designs. So we then need to adapt the insights from the academy so that they can have a meaningful impact with the client base that we work with an awareness of their limitations, socioeconomic status, how the cultural context of where that study design happened. Maybe it was in, in investigating Lewy body dementia in Australia. And we want to take their insights and see how relevant they could be to a population in Los Angeles, California. We then, as clinicians working with the, society, with the science, we're empowered in adapting those insights in the clinical context that we work in. That's part of why it's important to have a diversity of perspectives in developing the science, interpreting mm-hmm. the science, and why you need to start feeling empowered as a clinician in knowing that you're actually part of this academic process. It's a part of our continuum of care. It's not this exclusive community that you need to not be involved in. We need to actually be having active conversations if we want the work that the academics are doing to be meaningful, but also for our work as clinicians to be meaningful. This is a bi-directional thing. You should feel like you can introduce and even be a little bit messy at the table. Like this podcast right now is just an open discussion. It can go in different directions. We're not pretending that this is super polished. It's just inspiring you to have us start these conversations. I think a good example of a more rigorous study design that then translated into a, a protocol for patients and then it was redone because it didn't make sense was constraint-induced movement therapy, which oh. has a lot of evidence and a really strong evidence. But the original protocol for constraint-induced movement therapy was to constrain the intact limb of someone with a stroke for 12 hours a day, which is just not practical. It's not. Mm -hmm. There's just no way you're going to get anyone to let that, to do that. So they had to come out with modified constraint-induced movement therapy Mm -hmm. that was more practical. And so I just like using this as an example for those who are like, well, what do you mean? How is the study not applicable? It's because it's not just not practical to sit down with a patient when you've got an hour a day, maybe five days a week, maybe just three days a week, like depending on your setting. And like, how are you going to get this patient to to tie their arm behind the back, literally, figuratively, but almost literally, and engage in occupations when they can't do anything. So 
I think it's a good example where they had to modify. They had to go back to the drawing board and be like, this doesn't work for real life. And um, I think we're used to, as clinicians, like, we notice when the research or, like, what we studied in OT school we all know that once we get into the field, it doesn't line up perfectly. That in that, and I think that kind of, in some cases, it taints the relationship between (laughs) academics and clinicians because there's a resistance and, and it could be genuinely that a lot of the academics that are developing the literature and the pressures that they're under, I think a lot of academics genuinely don't have that embodied experience to be attuned to what challenges day-to-day clinicians are facing and trying to adapt those insights on the ground. This might be a bit of a tangent, but I'm curious, Tim, when I was looking at going back to school, I chose to do the post-professional OTD because I'm still in the first decade of my development as a clinician, and I didn't feel like I was ready to leave the field And I felt like when I was exploring some of the PhD programs, it almost felt like I would be required to (laughs) leave practice in some ways. But I do know a lot of OT academics do maintain tie to practice. But could you speak to some of the experience as an academic that might limit your ability to be in touch with practice? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is a concern. I think there's a couple different things. There's a lot of push by students and the instructors to maintain up-to-date clinical practice experience, one, because most of us were originally clinicians and then became professors, so most of us enjoy it. And then the other hand is that if you're not doing it, you can't relate to the students, you can't relate to the fieldwork instructors. It's much more challenging, but it's still possible, but it's just more challenging. And I think mm-hmm. I think that it depends on the setting and the school that you Teach at, so for mine example, if I were to practice outside of my work time, I would have to set up what's called an MOU, a memorandum of understanding, which takes legal and HR and all these other things to just move like if I wanted to work four hours on a Friday afternoon at the hospital, it would take six weeks of paperwork to just get it done because then basically the bill at my my like salary would then get sent to my department. Then my department would pay me. And so it's a big pain in the butt. And structural barriers to manage that. Oh, and there's so many, there's so many barriers in academia to do different things. I'm probably not going to be average work week for a, and I don't know if the right way to classify like early stage academics, that might be a good term. Yeah. I I teach at an R1 university and I'm on the tenure track, which means I have the biggest expectation of productivity in terms of teaching and research and service. And yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough road. It's probably given me a couple gray hairs, but, and I still have several years to go, but I'm still, I still basically feel like I'm always behind in terms of productivity. Because there's a lot of things. Clinicians, we gotta be compassionate to that, right? We gotta know what that is. I didn't realize that. I think some people see that Ivy Tower stereotype in their mind and kind of imagine that there are these like elite professors that are, I don't know, sipping cognac by a big globe and just having 80% free time and just drop into their lectures every once in a while. And (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> are elusively traveling the world, picking up specimens and things like that. But getting to know and humanizing yeah. academics a bit, it sounds like 65-hour work weeks might be the norm. Yeah. The I mean, on one hand, it is flexible. Like, 
I am lucky that my kid on Wednesdays give, gets out at noon. And so sometimes I can leave and go pick them up, but then I'm back at my desk at home working. And by then there's nights and weekends and, and it's volunteering for student events and then social action and <laughs> all these other things that go on that you feel obligated to do and participate in. And it's all part of the wear, process. You have to wear a lot of hats, just like yeah. us as clinicians, we have to wear a lot of hats and it's hard to figure out how we can juggle and manage all these responsibilities, especially practicing in late stage capitalism, which is trying to get as much free labor out of us as possible. And to me, that sets a context in how really then we can see the opportunity in supporting each other, because what you just outlined is how impractical it would be. And probably even if you did get that clearance for four hours worth of PRN practice time, it wouldn't truly be the lived experience of a full-time clinician. Not so, yeah. yeah. So even though you have that tether, and I think that's an amazing thing that OT has because so many of our academics did start as clinicians. That's pretty rare. I would also, and I was going to say this, and I forgot, but you just reminded me. Also, every entry-level program has to have OTRs essentially teach it. And if lab didactic courses, so a good 80% of faculty OT programs Faculty members are currently licensed practicing, practicing is in air quotes, but currently licensed therapists who took the MBCOT exam, who did the whole thing, the whole thing that the students are going through, which I think is a requirement that should always stay in ACOAT requirements. There's a couple of requirements that I disagree with ACOAT, but that's a different story. <laughs> oh, shoot. See, I have ADHD, so I like tangents. I know you shared with me, too. I don't know if it's still open, but I think there was something from ACOAT that was looking for feedback, or was that from AOTA? That was from ACOAT, yeah. I Can you think give us is... some context on that of how uh, clinicians could support that if it's still open? Yeah, I'd have to look. Maybe we can, but basically they, there's updates to the ACOAT requirements for accreditation right. and, and just for reference, some of my outside of my academic roles, I'm on the commission on practice for AOTA. And because of that, I had to turn down the offer I got to join their roster of accreditors for ACO, which I also applied for because they, <laughs> people thought it was a conflict of interest potentially between AOTA and ACO. So when I'm done with AOTA's commission, I can potentially do ACO. But the idea is essentially those accreditors are faculty at different OT programs who go around and and review program content and make sure they match the accreditation standards, which is the thing that's under review right now. Okay. This link that you're showing is for the RA motions. Oh, so this isn't for ACOAT, though. No, this no, is not This ACOAT. one isn't. Okay. Yeah. But there is something, I think, going on right now that we could give feedback to ACOAT about. Yeah, let me see if I can find it. ACOAT updates. Call for comments on draft. Web-based survey. When is it due? It doesn't have a deadline, but they are meeting cool. Friday at 20, April 21st. Oh, oh, surveys must be submitted before April 10th. Oh, sweet. So, yeah, if you're open to this, I think we should definitely publish this conversation to the Engaging <laughs> OS podcast. There's the link. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I love about getting more academics maybe on social media and reaching out to clinicians to see how we can support each other's professional goals, because that's really why we're here. So academics are often a lot more in the loop on these sort of opportunities to influence the policies in our professional bodies. 
And so that's one of the ways I highly recommend making friends with academics too, is just to get insight on when all these things that we have complaints about in the field, we definitely have complaints about ECO. We definitely have complaints about AOTA, but we got to be like our, what we want our clients to do, right? Is not just seeing the barriers. We got to see the opportunities for growth, for change and for intervention. I think OTs in particular can really get stuck in cycles of being self-limiting and keep recurring these cycles. That's part of how we get stuck with these systems that don't evolve, that aren't keeping up with new developments, new trends is we got to be looking at opportunities for resolution of these concerns. And when regulatory bodies like ACO and AOTA are open for comment, man, that's our responsibility and our opportunity to show up as clinicians. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the big, show up. <laughs> yeah, I think the biggest, you're so right. I think the biggest complaint I've heard of AOTA and ACO is that they don't listen to us. And not, I don't know if it's an intentional, I don't think it's intentional. I just think it's uh, everyone's really busy. And so to take feedback is open. This is the time to provide that feedback. And, and I would also say, clinicians don't always express their voices. A lot of us, really, we talked a little bit at the beginning of this about how it has almost been designed to feel intimidating to everyone, even those that are inside it. It's one of those things where the hierarchy, you can never go up high enough and feel, not feel imposter syndrome syndrome at some level. And it's continued with, from the evolution of a, of a, of an academic is you start and you try to hit these really hard milestones. And then when you do, you expect people below you to do the same thing. And so it's this, it adds to that hierarchy. And this rat race. Yeah, exactly. Most of us probably feel that too. In some of our more hierarchical Western working environments, it can be the same feel. But I, what I, what sucks about that phenomena to me is it also prevents us from understanding where we have privileged access in these systems because you always feel like you're one below. You always feel like you're just trying to keep up with the Joneses and we forget to actually reflect and see what advantages we have and what opportunities we actually can share with others as we move up because it doesn't matter where you are in this clinician. If you're an OTP, we have some privileged status in these systems that we work in. Absolutely. And privilege comes with permission, it comes with opportunity, and it comes with an obligation and a responsibility to share those privileges, to make them more accessible to a wider diversity of demographics. So even as somebody that's entering this conversation with field experience at the associate's level, you have so much information that your clients have never gotten access to. And right. you have connections to OTRs that may have connections to academics. We're part of this like food chain of information that we're connected to. And even if you're feeling behind, there's somebody that's actually farther behind you that you can pass along a baton and a lifeline. We right. got to be building these relationships and we have to humanize each other so that we feel comfortable talking about the challenges that we're experiencing without feeling like that's a fault or vulnerability or that we're right. doing something wrong. Like these systems aren't working and we are the ones, we're the agents to try to, if you're an OT or an occupational science enthusiast, You've signed up to be part of constructively changing systems so that we have better outcomes for our clients. We have more occupational well-being. It's really your obligation to not just make your voice heard, but to amplify your clients' voices and your needs from these systems. 
So we can complain as much as we want till we're blue in the face that AOTA isn't listening, that ACODE isn't listening. But what are we saying? What are we bringing up so that they know what we're experiencing, so they know our lived experiences in the field? It takes two to tango. We have to build relationships in all directions if what we're innovating, what we're building together is going to have a hope of changing the realities of our clients. So it's just important. There's ways that we can really easily escape responsibility by getting into a blame trap. But we're part of the solution. Academics need us. They physically can't work in the field as much as we want them to. They need us to let them know what challenges we're having and what sort of research can really help the clients practically in that ecological validity sense. Not just how do we make a really pristine, publishable, Cochrane review, systemic review thing that can get us funding for our services. That's one challenge, a really important challenge. But Academics need our help with that secondary challenge of how do we take this systemic review and this high standard research we had and how do we adapt it for our practice settings? They really can't do this work without us. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say that referring to, like, for example, the Commission on Practice that I'm on, a lot of the initiatives and documents that we create are based on RA motions. And so that was the other link that you shared. So RA motions So each state, if you're unfamiliar, each state has an RA representative and you can contact your, I was about to sneeze. You can contact your RA, email your RA anytime, but with your concerns and it's their obligation, their job to bring it up in the assembly. And, but then there's more formal feedback here, which is the call for motions. And it's essentially providing support or saying this isn't a worthy activity. It should be a important. priority for the association to yeah, respond to. Yeah, okay. so for example, and I'm pretty sure I can share this, the RA had a motion to add dry needling, the stance on dry needling as a physical agent modality. And so I'm one of the coordinators for the PAMS paper, and we're essentially, we gather experts on these topics. They write this paper. We edit it in terms of like flow and and the grammar and other things. And then we share it with the whole group and then they all provide insights and feedback. And then it goes to the RA. There's a couple other levels that have to approve it. And then it gets published on AOTA's website. And so there's a whole selection of documents. And so the current RFA has a couple COP documents. Should this be made? And I think it was critical care. I don't remember. Yeah, I think there's one here about policy. Oh, interventions to motion two. There's critical care is motion one, but motion two is policy on interventions to support occupations. And so that kind of came out of the PAMS discussion that we had and I was a part of about whether or not agent modalities and other activities that lead to supportive supporting occupations should be a whole category of interventions, which I'm actually excited about to redefine how we look at interventions. Like, should eSTEM be considered a supportive occupation, support supports to occupation versus engaging an occupation with eSTEM? It's very semantic, but it helps redefine or define in more obvious ways, like, what OTs do on a very what our role is yeah and where I see so what I love about making this increasing the peephole into how this stuff comes together when I did a legislative work before I became an OT we used to talk like 
how the sausage gets made, where you get to see behind the scenes. Unless you've been part of those communities that can show you how all this stuff comes together, I think it's easy to have this sense that they just are coming from on high down some <laughs> tablets with words on them. And, right. Oh, now this is the policy now. This is what we have to do. But in real actual life, these things are humans having conversations and these policies are shaped with like political economic forces. They're very human and they can change over time. All laws are subject to change. All policies are subject to feedback. And it can be really common to have the conception that, oh, you can't be involved in any of this until you have a PhD. That goalpost will keep moving. They don't, you're not allowed to be involved. But what I'm hearing from Tim with how this is actually structured right now, there is a whole array of possibilities for clinicians to be involved in shaping this process. And even if you don't have something, if you're a PhD and you don't have active current cl clinical experience, no problem. Partner with somebody that has that. You don't have a PhD? No problem. Partner with somebody that has that. That's what me, me and Tim right now, we're collaborators. I'm right now a full-time clinician, part-time academic activist. I have some flexibility where Tim might have some stuckness. He has access to things where I don't have any capacity. Like Tim right now, just to be transparent with you, he'll be one of my points of contact to access articles now that I'm no longer affiliated with the University of Utah's database. Absolutely. We kind of building a symbiotic relationship where my insights as a clinician can help advance his academic work, where we can co-publish on projects and we can be part of the change we want to see in the OT and OS world. Mm -hmm. And as I'm talking right now, Tim, I'm actually just thinking about the ECHO project, mm -hmm. how, how much that is, it connects to some of a little bit of what we got to share about your story yeah. of how you were getting frustrated with the siloed parts of the hospital systems that you were working in. And I wonder if we should pull full circle into how it sounds like the ECHO project also is part of your university uh, coming there. And I think it's an exciting that you're seeing these barriers, but because of your position, you're also seeing possible solutions that we can be a part of. Right. Yeah. So I can introduce the ECHO project. It stands for the Extension Collaboration and something for H. I should probably know that. But essentially, it's a protocol that was developed at University of New Mexico, where I work, and initially to connect physicians across distances. Because New Mexico is such a rural state, we have a lot of practitioners who work on tribal lands and with like little to no infrastructure. And, and then those with infrastructure are so disconnected because it's such a geographic distance. Our population is, I think I saw it recently, is the size of Poland and spread across a vast distances. There's a lot of nothing and most of us are live in Albuquerque. And so the challenge is like, how do we collaborate? And so the ECHO model, which it was a project ECHO was started to bridge those gaps. And so originally it was a virtual pre-pandemic design, virtual meeting time worth essentially an hour and a half to two hours of structured time where the first half was didactic presentation by someone with knowledge, so an academic or someone who's done this research who's also a clinician. And then a discussion about that, like a 10 to 15 minute Q&A session, and then about a 50 minute discussion about a case. And typically... Well, so again, actual, practically applicable 
case example, bringing yes. multiple perspectives together. I pulled up the website here, which we'll share in the show notes, that they have a fantastic website that outline different intentions of the project and invitations for growth in the project is what I saw, that there is a lot of interest in the developers of this model to have it be inclusive, to have it yep. spread and be responsive to community needs. Slight tangent, I got an opportunity to be part of a legislative hearing last week. And one of the bills that was heard after we testified talked about a hospital system in my community that I had no idea about. I think it was the Toppenish hospital system. And they were making a plea for more, couldn't meet the standards of a critical access hospital, but was the sole access to health healthcare for indigenous populations in my community where mm. I think about 80% of the clients out there were requiring Medicaid and didn't have the means of transportation even to a health system. And they got some emergency funding during COVID that has now disappeared. And so they've had to close down a lot of their programs that have been really great health outcomes, great research and everything. But mm. I'm just bringing this up that if you're a clinician and you might hear some of these things that sound like woke buzzword literature about indigenous decolonizing our health system or access barriers, and you might assume, oh, that's just a conversation for academia. The truth is that it's a real lived experience in just about every one of our communities in the United States that we have a tie to indigenous populations that are underserved and rural populations that have the same human rights that you do, that have the same civil rights, the same access to federal programs. For those of us that live in more urban centers, they have those same rights, but they don't have access to the same systems and they don't have access to the same opportunities in their communities. And so even just by virtue, if you live in a more urban medical center, there are communities that you're connected to that aren't benefiting from that infrastructure and that need the insights from the hospital system that you work in. And it's, I just want to encourage all of you to research a little bit about the communities around you and understand where some people might be experiencing disparities and where you can be part of actually helping those systems and helping through an echo project like this, sharing insights from one hospital system to another in your same state, just by virtue of one being more rural and one being more urban, a project like this can also connect us and share information where, from a more privileged context to one that's experiencing some systemic disparities. And I will echo that, that there's, it has a parallel even to academia. I've had students, applicants contact me and just ask for advice in terms of, I want to be a professor. What does that take? And they're from a tribal region and they have no, no understanding of what tenure is or what a PhD is or any of the structural parts. And so I've spent several hours on the phone just talking with students who are like interested in it because they expressed interest in the interview. And I was like, Oh, if you want some more, send me an email or give me a call and the same and the same it's parallel in terms of access wow. to information and just like I was able to use the knowledge that I have from my family and also as a PhD professor the what I've learned and so the yeah so no, that that was a really good story but essentially just echoing what you said that it, 
it is a the disparity is real and exists. Is that we can use technology and we can use things that we're familiar with because even on this page that I have pulled up, it's inspired by the way clinicians learn during medical rounds during residence, Mm -hmm. where you're intentionally creating a time and space. And you're acknowledging that there's value in having conversations about shared problems. This is a huge systemic barrier that we're experiencing, I think both in academia and in the field, that we're not reimbursed for indirect time. And we're not, I think most of us, I feel confident in putting a hypothesis forward. I think most of us on the front lines know that it's our connections with our interdisciplinary peers and working in the system that often makes the difference for our clients. That mm-hmm. ability to try to get on the same page on how we're doing toileting transfers or coordinating the social worker has the accurate information about the low def- vision deficits, the pain that could be a factor to readmitting to the hospital. It's this time where we're actually communicating and getting to know each other and seeing what other stakeholders have to offer on a shared problem that can really be life-changing for our clients. But we happen to practice in late-stage capitalism, human service systems, and academies here in the United States that structurally don't support that. We actually have to be like rebels and create time outside of our allocated billable time to do this rounding. And we have to invest in time outside and beyond our traditional work structure. However, it is projects like the ECHO model that are showing if we make time and space for these conversations to happen, we can have transformative growth that skips decades of lag time in finding meaningful solution. Do you mind, Tim, adding some context on the eco model about how clinicians get to be a part of it and how it ends up drawing out into practical solutions in these underserved communities? Sure. Yeah. The essentially that they're the at least the primary echo organization, echo groups have different focus areas. And so the ones that I'm most familiar with are divided by essentially department or disease. <laughs> Specialty. I joined the endocrinology group for half a dozen sessions. That was so I designed and submitted a grant that would create a version of Echo for OTs that specifically did diabetes, specifying in diabetes because of just the opportunity for OTs to provide that kind of education. And it's also not really a it's an emerging practice area and practice area is probably too big of a word for it, but it's just a knowledge base that is important to have in every adult context that an OT works in. And so providing new educational opportunities for OTs who see patients with, with a deficit in their endocrinology, in their diet. In the lifestyle interventions, right? Uh, Just to add some context to those, if I got part of what triggered me to go back to OT school was I did go to a convert I went to a conference about lifestyle interventions to treat diabetes and to help Ooh. people get off insulin. And one of the case studies that they cited at this conference that was really exciting for everybody in the community, because it was mostly made up of doctors and Mm. nurse practitioners and community stakeholders, but there was an OTD student from the University of Utah that published just a single case study about the use of carbohydrate restriction to treat lymphedema. Mm. And she utilized an occupation-based approach and had focus groups, and it was mostly a lifestyle redesign type intervention of helping people adapt their nutrition habits, routines 
around a low sugar lifestyle. And what they found was that their lymphedema swelling reduced significantly to mm-hmm. enable independence and things like increased functional mobility, the increased ability to put lower body dressing on. This is a place where OT is really, could really be a significant contributor to development of the science. If more people knew about what we could do in the current yep. health system that's set up, so a slight tangent to this, and one of the benefits of participating as a clinician in projects like ECHO, and knowing, too, about I got inspired by another OT that just published a simple case study, and I got to see how it was influencing how doctors were thinking about treating diabetes. You get to be part of this process, and if you participate in just these conversations in ECHO where you can highlight to other doctors, social workers, physical therapists what OT actually can do to help and what's in our scope when it comes to lifestyle interventions. This is a place which I just want to share some gratitude to you, Tim, because I didn't know that was the focus of that work. But we know as adult rehab therapists, gosh, 85% of my patients live with type 2 diabetes. I've had several with type 1 diabetes that has so many implications for how they can safely access the community and yeah. how they get impacted by client factor death. And just, it's, it's almost doesn't have obvious symptoms and it has some symptoms, but they're easily ignored, which is a common thing, at least in the cultural areas around me in New Mexico is very common. I'm just going to move on with my life because this probably isn't a big deal. And then all of a sudden they're getting serious symptoms related to diabetes. So it's uncontrolled. And yeah, it's a big, it's a big problem in our community here. To bring in some occupational science perspective, too, when we look at disparities and how we build and understand how our science develops with a cultural lens as well, I know that I can't cite them directly offhand, but there's been really compelling work about folks that are First Nation and Indigenous populations that once they got forced to assimilate to a more of a colonial diet, that's where we see the emergence of a lot more metabolic, long-term, a chronic illness. And there are times where you can support people to adapting to engaging in a diet that's more in alignment with what their ancestors consumed regularly. And a lot of us, just all humans across the board, increase like positive health outcomes when we adapt to a diet with like less sugar, for example, because sugar is like in a plentiful availability in our current environment over the last 200 years or so. But prior to that, it used to be a lot more difficult for our ancestors to acquire the caloric intake and just the pure kind of simple sugar carbohydrates. That's something our bodies didn't physiologically adapt to that's very novel and that's part of why we're seeing the increased occurrence of type 2 diabetes so i just wanted to highlight that this is where occupational science also contributes to how we can understand and how we can look at responding in a culturally mindful way to some of the risk factors that lead to things like type 2 diabetes yeah exactly so that aotf grant that i was a part of didn't get funded but it did get on the radar of a couple AOTA, high-ranking AOTA officers. And I want to give a thank you to, to the, the director of evidence-based practice, Susan Cahill, who contacted me and was like, this project's a really great idea. We need to do it for OTs. And I said, absolutely, we need to do it for OTs. So there's been a couple trial runs. 
And the most recent one was partnered with the MS Society, and it was an MS one. I didn't attend those, unfortunately. I didn't have time, but and I'm looking forward to hearing from Susan how it went. But essentially... They were, they've been limited runs. So there was like a six week session. And then prior to that, there was a project, a trial last year that was for chronic conditions. And I honestly don't know how to get on those lists, like how to be involved in those echo projects, but they did make com- special interest groups or community groups based on it. And I joined those because I, because Susan was like, Tim, give me your feedback. And, and, and they're interesting. There's lots of interesting connections that are made there. And I think that kind of goes back to discussing yeah. that availability of information <laughs> and community. I wanted, sorry. Okay. I guess I can't hold back. I'm sorry to no, interrupt you, but I think to me, part of what I'm seeing, how this conversation is folding right now, at least for me, the importance of not throwing the baby with the bathwater when it comes to these challenging systems that we work in. Because a lot of the projects that you're developing and the networking that you're made, some might say, oh, but that's just the medical model that we're trying to walk away from. But the truth is a lot of our clients, especially the most miniaturized and marginalized communities, are often, in my experience, like 100% development dependent on what is publicly funded and what they have access to as a right as a human being. And if we just walk away from these traditional hierarchical projects and how they get funded, if we just walk away out of protest because we don't like how historically these systems have operated, what I observe is we end up just preserving those structures in place because they don't get that feedback of what's not working. And I think we have to humanize not just the full continuum of what would be considered a, like a more stigmatized or like that I'm thinking of like the caste system or something where you have, oh, cultures of supremacy that happen that can put humans on different tiers and that we're all been hurt by and that we're recovering from. But we need to, and we need to humanize, I think, across the lifespan and know that these people in leadership positions are also human beings that are often open to feedback in unexpected ways. So partnering with somebody like Tim and even this more traditional medical model and the opportunities that they bring about, we don't know what the impact is of being able to show up and plant seeds to consider doing things a little bit differently. Like uh, I, I knew Tim, gosh, how long ago did we meet? Probably like eight years ago. I think eight years ago. So you got invited into, we should say this was pretty privileged. We were one of what, 15 people that got. Yeah. It was like, program. it was 12 to 15, something like that. Yeah. It was, yeah, yeah, and so that was pretty, like, an exclusive group. That's why I think we're both partnering to bring this to a broader group and to give you insight to what we've learned by working inside these systems and to hopefully create an invitational error that you can be involved and that there are welcoming places that your insight is needed for these systems to evolve. Tim started with some concerns about community maybe not being enough. And he's now showed up and planted seeds. And now I'm seeing the growth of your work and how it's evolved in eight short years. And when Tim started this work with AOTA, man, we were both lowly students. At that point, you were just a clinician, quote, just a clinician. I was just a master's student. And add to that, like when I applied to the commission on practice twice, 
And three times, three times. The first time I got interviewed and I basically said all of this stuff where I was like, I think information needs to be shared equally among all the people and like we should have equal access. And I think it's really hard to limit some. And I like went on this kind of inspired rant and, read, yeah. <laughs> and I think they thought it was interesting and they liked me, but clearly I didn't have enough credentials. So I wasn't chosen. And then the second time, I think it was the same people were like, no, we already said no to you. And then the third time there was some new leadership and I interviewed again, gave a very blunted version and hinted at some of my ideas. And then they were well received. And I think that, and it's the same thing with the merging leadership program. I applied twice. And actually, the year I was accepted was the last year I possibly could have qualified for it, and I lucked out. But but yeah, I framed that rejection letter. That's another thing, by the way, I like to do is I like to take rejection and put it on the wall because it just drives me. But but with the Commission on Practice, even in the interview, I was expressing these ideas, and I think it sunk in to the people I was being interviewed by because one of them was Susan Cahill, and so she then saw my application to this grant was like, oh, this is a good idea and we need this. And so I think those seeds are growing. And even I have a meeting tonight with the commission and we have a monthly meeting and I've gone on my soapbox probably every meeting about how this information (laughs) needs to be more understandable. It needs to be more applicable. This is not how people do it in real life. Why are we writing it this way? And so I, again, I like to, I have a bit of a rebellious side and I like to challenge things. I went on a whole tirade about driving and community mobility that was only driving. And I was like, wait a minute, people take shuttles, shuttle buses, paratransit, Uber. Like just because you're a driving rehab professional doesn't mean that's the only perspective that needs to be included in this document. So I like for the accessibility and understanding those stakeholders, which thank goodness to that. OT as a field and occupational science as a science has prioritized field experience in eventually, like, I I guess I want to, I don't know exactly about other fields, but I have sensed like my partner, he's a board certified behavioral analyst and Mm. he harbors a lot of resentment towards the academics in the behavioral, which is its own flavor and thing, but it's a little, it's a lot more rare from what I understand in his field to have PhDs that are developing the science tend to be lab biologists, really. They tend to be very, they don't, part of the concerns about ABA and board certified behavioral analysts in can go originate back to how it started in the lab. It didn't start yeah. in the field. It didn't start as a therapy. It ended that up, it was sense. created in academia and then got adapted in ways that I think is really, I see an actual like really amazing opportunity to partner with the ABA crowd because they're missing everything that OT has. And, but at the same time, they have a business model that we haven't innovated yet to work with folks where they live, work and play and where the occupations are happening with a data collection mechanism. I just, we could be such a dream team to really holistically meet the needs of the client. So I always see some of these resistance that opportunity. And while we're on this tangent too, I love what you're saying that, oh man, spite and rejection can be the seed of the most amazing transformative work. I think that's a true OT thing too for a lot of our clients. Yeah, the thing that's going to make me do the thing is you telling me I can't. Yeah, And maybe that's a good part of where we are current 
horrible health system. That might be part of what's helping us change it is we're so denying care and emphasizing what we can't do that maybe we're helping to sow the rebellious seeds of, yes, we can. Mm-hmm. We can look at all these things that we actually can build and invade and I think too that I'm imagining in our collaborative work, Tim, I hope that we can extend leadership opportunities beyond that exclusive 12 to 15. Because the truth is like there's so much work to be done at AOTA and all of our professional organizations. They are, we're suffering from a dearth of volunteers. We don't have enough volunteer workforce and diverse input. We need more. So we really need clinicians to see that this is not an exclusive group. This is an open opportunity for you to contribute to the development of our field and that we're actually more at risk by not trying to advance, not trying to do things, not trying to communicate than to do it imperfectly. Can I put a plug in? We, the Commission on Practice, does not have an OTA um, and we've been missing one. We've tried several times. I was appointed in August and I was, they had someone but they backed out. And, and so it, we have this open position and we are pushing hard to find someone. And if anyone's listening, who's an OTA who really wants to have a voice, look into it because we really need the OTA perspective um, on this. And the fact that we don't have it is upsetting. And part of it has to do with the type of work. And again, it's that barrier of, Oh, do I need a PhD to do this? The answer is no. It the helps. <laughs> of those are myths. And I, one of the things I hope for these podcasts that I get involved in with my ADHD and I can't hold a full focus, but I would love for them to contribute to some therapy world myth busting. We need myth busting. There's so many myths that often come from like insecurity. Like we can feel like competitive and insecure, but I think we have to challenge ourselves to have more of a growth mindset and to Try to lean into where we feel hurt, where we feel excluded, where we feel wounded, and try to process some of that to get to a point where we can build empowered collaborations. Because I always get caught up with some dynamics with physical therapy and occupational therapy that I've noticed I got to just like process and work through and get to a point where I'm putting more energy into the constructive collaborations than when we start feeling insecure or exclusive, it's common to say things like, oh, no, you can't do that, or we don't want that involved. But that's usually somebody's insecurities speaking. It might not always be the truth. Like when you look on the ground and you see who's involved in developing this work, more often than not, you're going to find people without credentials. And we're actually actively now needing to build our research with people that don't have credentials. Because when you're Developing in a context that is so divorced from the people that you're wanting to treat, your research is going to be bad. It's not going to be aligned with what that community needs. So with why I love and I'm investing so much in the potential future of occupational science as an academic discipline is pretty much all the different schools of thought that I'm seeing develop in occupational science is centering the intended client in the development of the science and empowering them to have a seat at the table and understanding their occupational reality and where they're experiencing barriers. Now as academics and as clinicians, 
our call and our responsibility is is evolving more towards one of listening than of prescribing. And I mean, it's not that we're not prescribing, but we're collaboratively problem solving with our clients. And that's beyond OT too. It's where the critiques of the contemporary healthcare system and the westernized health system implementation science is leading the charge on that in the medical model, because we have a colonial legacy with our healthcare system that has had a legacy of imposing solutions that are poor fits for the communities. And in some cases that creates more problems Mm -hmm. and helps. Yep. So we need you to know that not only do you have formal permission and informal permission, you have an obligation to be involved in the development of our science and the development and progression of our healthcare system. Occupational therapy and occupational science started because we had overly daring and undereducated women to a large extent in the initial seeds of it, OT started with field technicians and activists and other professions. We are here because of the OT ancestors that dared to speak up and to ha- to advocate for clients that were not given any systemic privileges. You're part of that legacy today. And I guess I have an OTD now. Tim, you have a PhD. So we have privilege. We probably feel pretty lowly in our other contexts. There's space that we're not the top of these hierarchies. But you at least have permission from one OTD and one PhD. Exploring these systems and see where you do have a voice. Know that it's going to feel weird. It's going to feel terrifying to speak Mm -hmm. truth to power. But what if your clients need that from you? What if they need some support? We have to build alliances with folks that have systemic privilege to help amplify voices that would not otherwise get heard. And it might not change in the next month. It might not be instantaneous. But man, I've seen Tim plant seeds that have now started to sprout and take root over eight years. Tim's seen me plant some seeds Mm -hmm. and roots being a little bit rebellious that have now grown into partnerships, which speaking of, we get to collaborate on a textbook chapter, not something I'd ever thought I would do as a clinician. And I don't know, you just got to put that spark of hope out there of finding solutions and building partnerships. You get to play an active role in this. Tim, I want to be mindful of time. What? How long did we have scheduled? Are we already going over? We're over a bit. That's okay. Okay. I think that why don't we transition out of this this trial? This is part of, I want to thank the audience for sharing in this. We wanted to trial out building a podcast as a supplementary resource to this textbook chapters we're building because textbooks are not the best way to hit clinicians, but podcasts can be a little bit more accessible to working field clinicians. So thank you for joining us in this experiment and know that we're open to, we're working on this textbook chapter. We would love to hear from you about like, how would, what would work for you as a clinician to get updated about new developments in textbook chapters, new developments in the field? How would you like to consume this information? Where are you spending your time? Do you like to listen to podcasts while you're driving? Do you like looking at memes? Do you like comics? What social media platforms are you on? How can academics or hybrid academic clinicians like us, how can we meet you where you're at? Where would be a convenient way to get this information? What do you think about projects like the ECHO? What do you think we could innovate and build together? What if we created our own knowledge dissemination platforms and stuff? We would love to have you involved in this conversation from the get-go.
So feel free to reach out to us if you're interested in some of these dynamics. And if you want to know about leadership opportunities that come up at AOTA state associations, you got two allies here. We want to hook you up so that our field can be more diverse and so our systems can change. Tim, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to help broaden this conversation. And I look forward to having you back to come and promoting these projects. It's so exciting to be a part of the change, to be angry, to have spite, to have disdain, <laughs> to like rebel against these systems, and then to know that we get to be a part of the solution. And, which, and see some of those solutions in action. That's the big part. We're going to mess up. This isn't going to be perfect. We're going to be messy <laughs> yep. and we got to be open to feedback. So it's not something we got to dare to do imperfect action, which is counteracting yet. Anyway, thank you so much, Tim. Is there anything else that you want to say as final words to the audience or anything that you want them to be sure to check out? Yeah, I'll just reiterate the ACOAT motion, the ACOAT edits. Check that out. April 10th is when those close. And then the RA motions for AOTA. Get your feedback in. And if you are interested in the Commission on Practice and have questions about it, shoot me an email. I'm assuming that you'll include my email in the description. Email in the link and I'll have to explore and see if you have anywhere that, do you have any like place like Orchid or Google Scholar or anything that highlights? Yeah, I've got an, I've got got research, what is it? Research gate and, and the Orc ID and. I'll include those below and i think that would be a great tim such a welcoming person too it's one of start getting one relationship and it will start to snowball you'll start to meet other academics that are nice open clinicians and not these scary oppressive forces and and that reminds me i could talk all day about networking so if we ever want to talk about how to network i could do do, i could do that let's (laughs) do another session on that and also we'll just plug real quick too tim's going to be at aota conference he's presenting a great poster on accessing literature outside of paper i think it's like it's a it's clever title it's no easy task finding the right information to guide your practice and so. he's going to be also building like a accessible supplement to that poster too for those that couldn't make it. We'll make sure to include a link to that once that's live back here in these show notes. So I'm super anxious to have you as a future guest. Thanks Sounds for good. helping me get this off the ground. Yeah, of awesome. course.